edify means to enlighten, encourage, and uplift individuals, intellectually, morally, and spiritually. That's exactly what our Edify podcast guests do, as they share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Our guest today is Ryan Ellis, president of the Center for a Free Economy. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for being with us today. Great to be on. So lots of questions um, about the economy, and and you're the expert that we need to help our listeners really better understand this. So the Wall Street Journal recently said in a report that Americans are spending on average $460 more every month for essentials than this same time last year. Can you, I mean, for for the average person who didn't take an economics class, um, why did this happen? What's actually going on? Is there any end in sight? Well, the good news is for any of our listeners, uh, despite what people put themselves out there as, no one's actually an expert on inflation. Uh, Inflation hasn't been a problem uh, that people have had to deal with in America uh, until the early 1980s was the last time this was a major problem. So people haven't looked at it. It hasn't been something that people have thought a lot about. But I think it really comes down to something really simple. The general definition of inflation people use is too many dollars chasing too few goods. That's the, that's the definition you hear most often. And I think it's probably the best way to start is, are we producing too few goods in the United States of America? No. Our production is really good. We're able to have the same level of economic output that we've always had. So why do we have inflation now? It's not because we don't have enough goods being produced. It's because we have too many dollars being produced. So over uh, the COVID period, as a way to kind of get through that crisis, the Federal Reserve, who's the primary uh, regulator of the money supply in America, increased the amount of dollars floating around in the economy by 42%, which is a huge, huge glut. Normally, it grows roughly with the economy, 6 or 7% growth a year in the amount of dollars that are circulating out there. But in about one or two years, it was a 42% spike in, in the amount of dollars that are out there. That dollars are then chasing the same amount of goods and services that the economy has always produced. And there's just too many dollars chasing too few goods. Go back to that basic first principles definition, and you begin to understand why this is going on. I, I get the too many dollars chasing too few goods. Is that because of the supply chain issues that we keep hearing about? Why are there too few goods? Because I, the, this, the excuse the administration seems to be using is that it's these supply chain um, problems. And it, or is there something more to it than that? Well, there was a video series that Milton Friedman, who's a Nobel laureate economist that really nailed how inflation works. He did this all the way back in the 1970s for PBS. And he asked a similar question to what you just asked. The way he asked it at the time, it wasn't supply chain. It was, are unions demanding wages that go too high? Or is it oil shocks from the Mideast? The things that were on the headlines in the late 1970s. Today, we might hear about something like supply chain crises or a problem with the war in the Ukraine between... All those are symptoms of uh, what inflation has. It's, it's as if you're looking at um, you know, a system that starts here and goes down the chain this way and you start in the middle. All right? Those are things that are in the middle. The very beginning of the chain is that 42% spike in the money supply. All that stuff has secondary effects like you've described. The supply chain crisis, all the other things that we hear about that are, quote, causing inflation, they're not causing inflation. They're the second order effects of having too much money supply. They're a symptom of the money supply causing inflation. 
You're looking at the middle of the story, not the beginning of the story. And what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote to too much money in the system, as you've put it? Well, as you might imagine, the simple answer to the simple question is, if you have too much money chasing too few goods, and you're already maxing out the amount of goods you can produce, which we are, it's not like we're, we're underproducing goods and services here in America, you have right. to reduce the money supply. That's the only way to get this under control. Well, how do you do that, practically speaking? Well, practically speaking, first of all, it's not as Herculean a task as you might, might suspect, because the money supply wasn't flat before. It needed right. to grow every year in order to keep up with the economy. So it was growing at 6 or 7% a year just to keep up with the population growth and the economy getting bigger every year. We had a natural growth in the money supply anyway. So even if we did nothing, even if the money supply was flat from here, the trend would catch up after several years. Okay. We don't want to wait several years, though. Like, we don't want to wait several years for inflation to work itself out. So right. in addition to that, you actually want the money supply to start to curve downward a little bit and meet that trend. So the question is, how do you do that? Well, one way you do that is the Federal Reserve can raise interest rates. Well, when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, what happens? We're seeing it now with the 30-year mortgage, for example. 30-year mortgages uh, have doubled uh, in the interest rate in the last year. They were in the low threes, now they're in the low sixes, if you wanted to get a 30-year mortgage. What that should do is it should mean people are going to be taking out fewer mortgages from banks. They're going to be taking out fewer refinances from banks. They're taking less money out of the banking system. More money remains in the banking system. So right. the, the money supply sloshing around the economy should not grow nearly as fast as a result of that because we're not taking money out. We're leaving money in. Also, let's say that your local bank or credit union is offering a higher rate of interest on deposits when you put your money in you're going to have an incentive to take cash out of your wallet and put it into the bank. So you're surrendering money voluntarily from the economy back into the banking system. The banks themselves are customers of the Federal Reserve. They might take their reserves of cash and put it into the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve will pay interest on that cash higher than what they used to pay. Okay. So it's all these dynamics of consumers and businesses putting money or not taking money out of the banks or putting them back in, and the banks putting money into the Federal Reserve, you're slowly draining the money supply a little bit of this excess supply of cash that's out there in the economy, and it's going back to who originally created it, which is the Federal Reserve. You're returning this excess supply. Well, let's, let's switch to another topic that's also very much in the, in the, in the news, and that's prescription drugs, particularly prescription, uh, prescription drug prices. And um, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats are looking to place these price controls, these caps on what people pay for their, their prescription medications. Can you talk a little bit about why that actually hurts the poor rather than helping them? Well, uh, just before Congress left for August recess, uh, they passed a, a hilariously named bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, which does uh, nothing. It's a totally accurate title, except Inflation Reduction and Act. Uh, okay. Other than that, it's a completely accurate bill title. One of the things the Inflation Reduction Act did uh, was it it's imposed price controls on ultimately up to 60 uh, prescription medicines that are paid for through the Medicare program. So right. Medicare is the program for older people. Medicaid is the program for poorer people. People get right. those two confused. So I always like to put the distinction on. Oh, I, I confuse them all the time. Yeah. Uh, and as you might imagine, uh, the elderly population, those 65 and older, are the ones most likely to consume prescription medicines. Sure. 
So they're it's dependent on them. Yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. I mean, them, you see these. They're dependent. We yeah. go over our grandparents and grandparents' house, and we see these pills that every day with the plastic, and there's six of them in there for every day, right? So they're the ones that are consuming most of these. So it's really important that we get prescription drug pricing and policy correct for the elderly population, because that really is the lion's share of who's taking these drugs. The problem is when the government goes in and imposes a price control, which is what the bill says that the government will now get to do, they will tell the drug manufacturer, you might want to sell that for $25 a dose. We're only going to pay you $15 a dose. That sounds great. That sounds like it saves taxpayers money. It saves seniors money. What's the problem? The problem is that every time the government has ever imposed a price control, an artificial mandatory price control on a good or service, the first thing that happens is the manufacturer is going to say, well, I'm going to make barely as much of that as I, as I need. And you run into a supply shortage because you can't force somebody to lose money. So right. if, you, if you did that with, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, that you live in Chicago and you got those awesome Italian beef sandwiches in, in your neighborhood. If the government, if the, if the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois came in and said, uh, we're only going to let you sell those for a dollar a sandwich, and you can't sell them for any more than a dollar a sandwich, then what you would see is a lot of Italian beef sandwich places which start to shut down because they can't make any money. They'd have to lay off people. There, there would be a general supply shortage of that good or service because the government is making it scarce. That's what price controls do. They make it scarce. So the problem is seniors aren't going to get access to the drugs that they need. And then when you have scarcity, people get scared. People start to hoard. It, it puts all these sort of problems into the system. The government then says, well, wait a minute, there's not enough drugs here for seniors. We're going to have to start to ration these out to the seniors that need them the most. And then, of course, need them the most is a subjective criteria. Maybe if you're the right race or you're the right political party or you're the right geographical area, or there's an election coming up and you're a blue state or a red state, you might suddenly need those drugs the most. And political considerations start getting put into this. So you move from a system that certainly wasn't perfect before, but at least it had some basic market dynamics going to it. And when you impose price controls, you end up very quickly after that, and I fear we're going to find that in the next few years, you find out very quickly after that that you end up with a system of scarcity and government rationing and misery. And I think that's what we're going to find. And so does um, the, the minimum wage uh, mandates, do, do, is that sort of a similar situation? I mean, you mentioned I live in Chicago. I had a friend who owned a restaurant here, and the city of Chicago increased the minimum wage, I think, to $15. Um, but he had to close his restaurant after about two months. Um, and he's a, he's a very serious Catholic. He paid his workers fairly. But as he said to me, you know, we operated on a razor-thin margin to begin with. And I can't maintain a restaurant and pay people that wage, you know, plus their tips, plus keep up with the, the cost of food. And um, right now in particular, and he wound up closing up shop and all those people lost their jobs. It's, it's sort of the flip side of it, right? So like a minimum right. wage is a price control going the other way. Most price controls are there because the government wants to squeeze costs down and save money. In this case, they want to spend other people's money. They want to take right. your friend who owns the restaurant, reach into his back pocket, and say, you've got to be paying your employees more than what you're paying them. Uh, well, that's all well and good, except your friend doesn't have infinite dollars in his back pocket to be reached into. At some point, he's going to start to lose money, and he's going to face a choice, which I think he probably is hard to face from what you've said, of either the entire restaurant shutting down and everybody, including him, losing their job at the restaurant, or he's going to have to lay, let's say, one person off so that everyone else gets to survive. 
That's exactly what the Congressional Budget Office about, I would say, seven or eight years ago came out with a really comprehensive study on this that said, what's the economic effect of raising the minimum wage? And what they found is that if you're lucky enough to keep your job, it's great. It's a windfall for you. If you're one of the people who gets to, if you're a low-income worker and you get to keep your job, it's a huge windfall for you. But on net, millions of people, if you did this high enough and nationally enough, lose their jobs. Their minimum wage goes to zero because they lose their job. Mm-hmm. And there's such a high hurdle to getting hired after that because if you don't have very good skills or work experience, let's say you're coming out of prison or you're coming out of a very, very bad situation in your life, you may not have the skills and experience to demand 15 or $20 an hour or whatever it is the government's demanding. You may be happy to get a start and prove yourself at 7 or $8 an hour and then very quickly move up the income ladder when you show that you will show up on time, you're not going to be high on drugs, the employer can rely on you, you're not going to steal from the employer, then people will absolutely want to pay you in order to keep you there. But they, don't, they, but they can't afford because they don't have the, the experience uh, or the education or the skills or the training to go at these very high limousine liberal levels that the government's imposing. And it also allows unscrupulous business owners to take advantage of poorer people, I would think, because then you do have the desperate people that you mentioned who are willing to work for anything, um, or they may be here illegally or what have you, and they're taken advantage of and are paid 3 and $4 an hour in cash. But you never hear about that when we're talking about the, the real-world impact of these minimum wage um, regulations. That's absolutely right. You have yeah. a black market in labor at that point. Right. Because if you can only pay somebody $10 an hour, but you can't do it legally, you're going to do it illegally. You're gonna, you're gonna, that's how a cash economy comes about. Right. Well, you did a really interesting social experiment at your organization uh, with the, the 25 cent beer night. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what you may have learned from it? Sure. Uh, so what we wanted to do was this is in, in Washington, D.C. This is a bar that's literally um, steps from the United States House of Representatives, a very popular bar uh, that we that we used. And we did a social experiment where we said, what's the effect of government price controls? So if the government puts a price control on something, what happens? And so the way we did this was you have a bunch of 20-something people working on the Hill, very tough environment. A lot of times they'll go out and have a drink after work. So what we did is we publicized on the Hill that at this bar for one night only, all beer would be 25 cents a pint rather than the usual 5 or $6 or whatever it is a pint when they go there. Right. Um, and so what we said was that 25 cents a beer will last as long as the supply lasts. We're not going to continue to increase more supply in. So it's first come, first serve until it runs out. And what we found was there was a huge rush of staffers going to the bar. They tell their friends, they email everybody else in their office, people in offices down the hall. And we had a huge rush of people come in. And everybody was very happy to be drinking their 25-cent beers for the roughly 45 to 50 minutes that the beers actually lasted. Normally, this beer supply would have lasted an entire Thursday evening or whatever night we were doing this. It lasted less than an hour because people came in and absolutely hoarded this money. That's what you have when you have artificially low prices. People come in, they swarm, they hoard it. And then what happened? The supply ran out. It's what happens every single time you have a price control. You have a rush on the good or service, and then the supply runs out. And in the restaurant, the bar, wasn't going to provide more supply because they were losing money by supplying it at 25 cents a beer. So they're not going to do any more supply. They have no incentive to do that. And so eventually we had to declare that 25 cent beer night was over and that regular prices would have to reassert themselves because the only alternative would be you could live on that for maybe weeks 
You could the, the bar could do that for weeks, and then it would have to shut down and you wouldn't have a bar anymore. So that was the lesson we were giving people. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Prices are set at a certain level by the market, not because people are mean, not because people are cruel, but because that's what it costs in order to provide that good or service. And we can, as Catholics, help people if they are in temporary need of help to get the goods and services they need. But on a nationwide level, if you start imposing prices, controls, wage controls, then you are going to absolutely screw up the economy. And of course, the first people that get hurt when the economy gets screwed up is the poor. Well, one of the things I was very touched by when I um, listened to your your Edify uh, episode is is you're talking about that preferential option for the poor and the true the church's true concern that the poor be able to live a life with dignity. Can can you talk about inflation as a social justice issue? Because I don't think a lot of people think about it that way. Well, the you know the people in our society who are least able to handle shocks to the economy who are least able to negotiate something or work out a financial way to deal with uncertainty are poor people. Poor people and the working poor and lower middle class, however, however far up the chain we want to go here, uh, they, are, they get up every day, they go to work, they earn a wage, they then have to use that wage to pay for their groceries, for their gas, for their car, for their, their rent, you know, however they are able to live their lives uh, for everything that they need, and that's it. That's the entirety of the complexity of their financial situation. If inflation comes in, you have more sophisticated people all the way up the chain who are able to use inflation and say, hey, uh, inflation's coming. I should take on a lot more debt before interest rates rise so that inflation reduces the real value of my debt. That's something that I did and a lot of middle class to upper middle class to wealthy people did. Uh, back when interest rates were very low, we took all the cheap debt we could get knowing that, that when the inflation inevitably came, it would monetize that debt, which is a fancy way of saying make it less burdensome to the person that owes the debt. You know who doesn't get to do that, who doesn't get to play those games is the poor. And now we're looking at it the other way. Uh, you can purchase what are called I-bonds now for close to a 10% rate, which is a government inflation-adjusted treasury bond. You can put money in the bank and get 2 and 3%, whereas before you were getting a fraction of a percent. You know who doesn't have extra money to do that? The poor. The poor are doing exactly what they did before inflation came and before all these interest rate changes happened. They're getting up every day. They're earning the best wage they can for their family. They have to use that money to pay for gas and groceries and their car and their rent. And they are finding that gas and groceries and car and rent is shooting way through the moon because of all these factors they can't control. It is a deeply unjust thing for the rest of the society to say, we're going to monkey around with the money supply and interest rates. And we're not going to care, really, how that impacts people who have no ability to adjust to those changes. And that's the poor. So as a Catholic um, economist who is, is invested in, in these issues, how if the Biden administration came to you and said, we'd like, you know, from a Catholic social justice perspective, your advice on sound economic policy and how we really can best address uh, these issues of inflation to make certain that the poor aren't the, a victim of them, what, what would you say? Well, I'd say, first of all, stop the bleeding. Stop what you're doing that's making it worse. That's always the first, whenever you have a problem, if you're feeding that problem, stop making it worse. So the way that the Biden administration and, and Democrats have been making it worse is they've taken all this extra money that the Federal Reserve, which is really the prime problem here, not the politicians, it's the Federal Reserve. They created all this extra money 
But it didn't require the politicians to then take that money, put it in a helicopter, drive around in the air, and dump all the money out of a helicopter so people could get cash. So you've seen that with most recently the student loan bailout, where they're trying to, you know, that that is a form of what we're talking about. There's been about a half a dozen of those things ever since COVID started, where they're just dumping money out of helicopters every few months. You've got to stop doing that because that's making inflation worse. So you stop doing that. That's number one. Number two, let's go back to our original definition. You have too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. That's what inflation is caused by. Well, we've sort of handled the too many dollars side already by talking about interest rates and stopping throwing money out of the helicopter. One of the ways we can increase production is by increasing energy production. So one of the things that the Biden administration did when they came into office was they listened to their environmental advisors and really started clamping down on uh, liquefied natural gas, um, pipelines, oil and gas, you name it. We need to look at nuclear as an example of something. That's something Europe has. France and Germany have a lot of nuclear capacity. We need to really increase our energy capacity because increasing your energy capacity really does allow your productivity to increase as an economy. That sops up a lot of this excess money supply if you can increase your productivity even just a little bit. But we can't do that without without energy. Um, and the third thing I would say, you know, to review, you want to um, stop doing the stop doing the damage, right? You want to uh, increase the energy supply and increase what we can do in order to get better productivity. And the third thing is, who's really at fault here? It's the Federal Reserve, right? That's the Federal Reserve. Give them the political cover they need. And this is in many ways just not getting in their way. They know what they have to do. They know that they caused a problem here. That's why you see these big interest rate increases. They know what they have to do. They are raising interest rates. They are shedding on their balance sheet, which is a whole other, probably too technical for our podcast here, uh, ways of, of getting at, at lowering inflation. Give them the cover they need. Don't let politicians go on the floor of Congress and say, we need to stop the Federal Reserve from doing this because it's hurting people. No, what hurts people is inflation. This is the cure for that. I, I think it was St. Augustine that said, uh, you don't stop carving into the patient just because he's screaming. If you're a doctor, right, you you have to you have to heal the patient. This is a painful transition period where we're moving from high inflation, and we need high interest rates among other things to get rid of that inflation. But at the end of the day, it's only a low inflation environment that allows the poor to move up the economic ladder generationally. Well, if if you say a parish, uh, you know, a working class parish invites you to come and speak about what's going on with inflation, et cetera, et cetera. And people are asking you, what is the what is the best thing we can be doing as a family or as a single working person or as an elderly person? What are the ways in which I can best economize um, to survive this period of time that we're going through as a nation? What What kind of practical financial advice could you give? Well, for one thing, it, it's going to vary tremendously from household to household. Right. I mean, that being said, yeah, but just in general, you know, everyone has to eat. Most people have to buy gas. It's it's the common sense stuff. It's 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 things. If you're looking at the household level and you're looking at modest households like that, mm-hmm. uh, what I would say is do the things that your mother and your grandmother did that you think you didn't have to do anymore, but now you do. Right. Clip coupons. Take a look at deals. Look at the bottom shelf when you go to the grocery store, not the top shelf. Things that you thought maybe you had graduated from, but now the government has graduated you back down into. You're right. going to have to do that for a couple of years. The other thing I would say is let your local officials know of the three things that we just talked about, that mm-hmm. you want to see those things happen. 
that you want to get us out of this inflation period as quickly as we can. We don't want another 1970s where this drags on for 10 years into the early 80s and you have 12 and 15% mortgage rates. We don't want that. I mean, it's almost impossible now if you're selling a home in some areas to get rid of, of properties, even in very desirable neighborhoods. A lot of that during the COVID years, you saw inflation in the form of real estate inflation go up. Right. You know, those of us that own, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be a homeowner. I own several other properties as well. And they all skyrocketed in value from from the time that I, and that was great. I was, you felt like the, you know, the wealthiest guy in the world, but you see all your properties going up like, well, guess what? If you try to unload those now at a very, very high level, when you have close to six and a half percent interest rate on a 30-year mortgage, people can't afford that anymore. So something's got to give. I think we can expect to see a plateauing, if not a small decline in the cost of housing going forward, because people need to be able to afford it. And just like, you know, the money supply, you know, increased by 42%. And so we don't have to digest that money supply increase, maybe even reduce it a little bit. Same thing with housing. Housing's gone up by 30, 40% in some cases on certain pieces of property. That's unsustainable. It's And the reason it went, went to that is because mortgage rates got so low that when you took a look at the carrying cost of a home with a very low mortgage rate, you could have a much higher priced home at a very, very low mortgage rate, and it wouldn't cost you that much to carry that mortgage every month. Well, right. what happens when the price of the house has gone like this and the mortgage rate has also gone like this? Then suddenly you have an unaffordable home. Something's got to give, and it's, it's all going to be part of a painful transition process here. Well, yeah, it's it's I think we are all going to be looking at some belt tightening, you know, even people who are secure in their positions. And um, but it's very painful to watch. I was talking to a friend who was in line at the grocery store and uh, the woman in front of her um, didn't have her her debit card was rejected and she didn't have enough money to buy her groceries. And she just broke down crying. And so my friend paid for the groceries for her. But she said, it was not crocodile tears. It was not kind of some kind of stage thing. This little woman literally couldn't pay for the food that she, and she said, I could tell she was buying baby formula. She had little kids at home, so she had to step in and do it. So I, I hope that that kind of scenario is not going to be replicated across the country, but I'm, I, I think it's going to take all of us tightening our belts, as I mentioned. Well, it also means, you know, as, as Catholics, that's where solidarity comes in, right? right. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. what, and it can't be, it can't be the forced solidarity of political programs or of, glossy papers coming out of chanceries and national conferences. It needs to be person-to-person solidarity, exactly what you just described, where you see right. a human being at the grocery store and there's baby formula and there's obviously things for little kids and she can't afford it. Step up a little bit if you've got a little bit extra. God's never outdone in generosity and you're, you're always rewarded for having that kind of compassionate heart. But I think you're right. That kind of radical solidarity with, with the poor requires that kind of personal investment um, and and not a, a, a you know arm's length sort of approach to people who are suffering. So yes. Well, Ryan Ellis, thank you so much for edifying us today, so that we can edify Catholics across the country and around the world. It's it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've I feel like I've I've really learned quite a bit. So thank you for sharing your time and your talent with us. Anytime. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.